0: Hey everyone, I'm Josh, and I'm going to be reading the passage for us today. So passage is in your little booklet there, so you can open it and follow along with me. Passage is Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people will like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows in them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the Sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on, on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust, Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metalworker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy, and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground, than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like jaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal? says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary,
1: Hi, my name's Tim. Uh, if we haven't met it's great to uh, be with you today. Um, just before I start the talk, um, I want to give one more announcement. Uh, we've been harping on about this for a while if you've been coming to see you regularly, but the NTE, the national training event for AFES for Christian unions across Australia, is happening in November December, uh, and plus trip, which is a mission where we join local churches for four or five days, travel together have a look around Canberra, go to the conference, go to Sydney, Katoomba, Blue Mountains, have a terrific time together, uh, is coming up. Now, there's a meeting this Sunday afternoon for everybody who wants to come. So I want to do two things. One, if you're still weighing up whether you're going to come, this would be a great week to decide whether you're able to or not. Uh, And there's a website there where you can register. Uh, Secondly, if you've decided you can't come to NTE to Plus trip but mission is still a possibility, then please come to mission. It's five days. It's just after exams. Uh, some trivial things about doing mission. One is you get to do real evangelism with children, with retirees, with uh, people in a community. Uh, secondly, you're part of a team uh, of people from CU, supporting each other, praying for each other, working together for Jesus. Uh, thirdly, it costs zero. The <laughs> NTE is quite expensive. But mission doesn't cost anything except a bit of pocket money or travel money. So uh, weigh up whether you could come and do mission, even if you can't do NTE. Again, you can register on that same website. If you're thinking about levers uh, that uh, Ben's just talked about, please do levers as your mission if that's possible, and then join us for the rest. If levers isn't really possible for you, then uh, come and join us as we join some churches around Perth. That makes sense? Good. So... If you need the details, the uh, planning meeting for missions and/or plus trip uh, is this Sunday, 7th of October at 2 p.m. There's the address. Okay. Uh, on the back of your outline, you'll find—sorry, back of your handout—you'll find an outline of where we're going today. And I'll just change the screen over. <coughs> I wonder what image or picture you have in your mind, your imagination, when you think about God. Like when you pray to God, what, what do you think of? Who do you think you're praying to? Do you have an image maybe of a benevolent grandparent figure or something? When you sing God's praises, do you think of a king sitting on a, cra- uh, on a throne? Whatever image you have, I presume it's an image of something you're familiar with as part of your experience, but you scale it up a bit in the ancient world. People often thought the sun or bulls or frogs were gods, and so they made images of gods which were just scaled-up versions of the bulls you'd find out in the paddock. What do you think of God as? A king? A grandparent? A policeman? A managing director? It may be scaled-up, expanded, a bigger version, but like one of those things that you know from elsewhere. But you notice there's a problem with thinking about God that way. Because in a sense, when you say God is like a policeman, but bigger, you're comparing God to something you experience in this world. Just a bit bigger or stronger or better. Which is really saying God is comparable. God is in the same league as. God occupies the same sort of stage as things I've experienced and people I've experienced. He's just bigger. Well, is that really what God is like? Because if God is really God, then if you think about God that way, You've diminished God. You've scaled him down. You've made him much smaller than he actually is. So how do you overcome that problem? Well, one way to overcome it is to put it in theological languages. So rather than pictures in your mind, you say something like this. The true God, who's infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, Almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, and you go on for a while, couldn't you? Now that's theologically precise and terrific, but can you imagine that? Like how do you how do you create a picture of that in your mind? How do you relate to a being like that? It seems to make it create the equal and opposite problem. Well, Isaiah chapter forty is a part of the Bible that has a clear message from God about God, about himself. And he gives us some ways to get our head around this true God, this living God, this majestic, immense God. Now, just a bit of background to fill us in. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet who speaks in Old Testament times. This is just a quick sort of timeline of the Old Testament. I don't know whether you recognize any of the events there, the flood with Noah, the Exodus under Moses, where God rescues his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt and takes them to the promised land and gives them a land to live in uh, as their land. Uh, a, a little while later David and Solomon become the, the, the sort of the king's par excellence of Israel, they build a temple to God but soon after that it all goes wrong there's civil war the, uh, Israel is split into two different uh, nations, the northern nation uh, Israel goes downhill pretty quickly and in 722 BC it's carted off by the Assyrians never to appear again really the, the southern couple of tribes called Judah last a fair bit longer Isaiah prophesies to Judah in Jerusalem, the capital, uh, in about 720 BC, uh, about 40 years around that time. And in the first 39 chapters of this book, he talks about the way that God's judgment will come on Judah because of their faithlessness in God. And it finally comes. The Babylonians come, destroy Jerusalem, cut off many of the Israelites uh, into exile, into slavery in Babylon. And Isaiah 40 is Isaiah... Addressing those exiles in Babylon, they're feeling intimidated because Babylon is just so much stronger. They're feeling despondent and and depressed. They saw no hope of ever getting out of Babylon, powerless. Their former glory was gone forever, they thought. Just, I guess, like if you're a Dockers fan at the moment. (laughs) But God comes with this message. It begins in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem, proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort, your sins are all paid for. You're now forgiven. Things are about to change. This is not the comfort of somebody just sharing your sorrow but can do nothing about it. This is the comfort of, I'm going to change things. And it goes on to talk about the way that will change. A voice of one calling in the desert, that is the the region between Babylon and and Palestine and Jerusalem, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God, a freeway. Every valley raised up, every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground made level, rugged places of plain. Civil engineers, this is you, okay? Bulldozers, every hill flattened, every valley filled up with all the rubble, all the rough places, the rocks and everything, smoothed over so you've just got this freeway straight from Babylon to Jerusalem because God is going to lead his people out of captivity back home and it's going to be terrific nothing will stop this procession God in the lead and it's God himself who will lead his people across the desert and so in verses 9 to 11 uh, you who bring good news to Zion you, you herald in Zion go up on the high mountain You who bring goods into Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, the towns around Jerusalem, here's your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. Jerusalem is to shout out with excitement. They've got a gospel to proclaim on this day. Tell all the surrounding towns, look, here is your God. Coming across the desert on that highway. Powerful. Victorious, his arm is ruling, but also gentle and merciful, carrying his people like a shepherd carries a lamb in its arms, which is exactly what the crushed, despondent people need. A God who's victorious over those who've crushed them, but gentle with the crushed. Now, need to notice something important here. The hope for Israel is not that she can pull herself out of her situation by herself. That she can somehow rebuild her strength, raise an army and do something. Isaiah isn't saying, come on guys, you can do it, just believe in yourselves. No, their hope is only in God doing something. They'll just get carried along by God as he does it. But amongst the people that Isaiah is speaking to, he, he predicts a response from them, an understandable response, a resistance. Of course, depressed people often don't want to be comforted. And sometimes skeptical people uh, don't don't put up with shallow, empty comfort. They've been burned too many times before. And so God tells Isaiah to speak. All men are grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers. The flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. We've just coming to the end of wildflower season in WA. Visited Kings Park with Rosemary on Saturday, and all the flowers are just starting to over, They look brilliant for a while, but a couple of hot days, that's the end. Well, people are like that. Just a couple of hot days and people wither uh, and fade away. Uh, which is really the people saying, get real, God. This is a lost cause. We're just people. But what's God's response? The very last line of verse 8. The word of our God stands forever. See, I think for the people of Israel... There was only really one reality that they could fathom. That was the reality that stared them in their eyes, that they could see with their eyes. Babylon was the great superpower. We were just the crushed little group that had no hope whatsoever. That's all they could see. But Isaiah says, you've got to hear as well as see. Babylon looked like it was permanent, it would last forever. But Isaiah says, no, it's the word of the Lord that lasts forever. It's the promise of God that you can bank on. Because when God makes a promise, that's his commitment. And so he he calls them to choose. Will you go with what you see or will you go with what you hear? With the reality that, that you just see with your eyes or with what God says to you? You can hear with your ears. In verse 27, that sort of resistance becomes even more explicit. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. See what they're saying? They actually got pretty cynical. If God really cared, it wouldn't have got this bad. Please don't give us hope. It's not going to happen. Your words of comfort are empty. And Isaiah's answer to that is, Your God is too small. And this is what he says to us. And most of this chapter is a way of explaining to us what God is really like. This central block from verse 12 following is demolishing our inadequate images of God to give us a sense of the true majesty of God by bombarding us with questions. So the questions that come over and over again is this one. To whom then will you compare God? To whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One? And the answer is no one. See, comparing is our way of getting a sense of scale. If somebody looks a bit tall, what do we say? Well... Maybe you're as tall as Aaron Sanderlands. He's pretty tall, isn't he? But as soon as you say, well, you're, sort of, you're not as tall as Aaron Sanderlands, what you're saying is you might not be as tall as him, but you're in the same game, you're in the same league. You can play on the same field. You belong together. Or if we say that uh, you know, somebody is slow compared to Usain Bolt, we're saying they can run in the same race, they might get blown away, but they're still in the same race. Not almost as smart as Stephen Hawkins? says, you're pretty smart. You might not be the top, but you're at university, aren't you? You're in the same league, but you fall a bit short of the person. But who is in God's league? Who can you compare God to? And the answer is nobody. Because there's nobody and nothing in the same league as God. And Isaiah goes through a whole lot of options that we might use. The first is our world. Verse 12. Who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Isaiah imagines you've gone down to Cottesloe Beach and you've scooped up a handful of water. Okay, How much water is left in the ocean when you've done that? Just a little bit, eh? I gather it's about 1.4 billion cubic kilometres of water left in the oceans after you've scooped up your handful. See, we don't measure what's in the oceans, we calculate it. No one sits there with a bucket and says, 10 litres, 20 litres, 30 litres, wonder how long this will take. But what does God do? He measures all the waters of the ocean in the hollow of his hand. That's not you. We're not in the same league as God at that point, are we? Or the heavens. With the breath of his hand, he marks off the heavens. Cosmologists guesstimate that our universe is about 93 billion light-years across. Want to translate that to kilometres? It's 9 by 10 to the 23. Nine with 23 zeros after it, kilometres. I've just walked two kilometres to uni, it took me a while. 9 by 10 to the 23 kilometres, I cannot comprehend that distance. But God spans it with his hand. That's a different league, isn't it? Well, what about the nations? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket... They're regarded as dust on the scales. You know those sort of scales the old-fashioned people used to use have two little buckets, and you put weights on them? Well, the nations of the world are like dust, just a few specks of dust on God's scales. China has 1.4 billion people. The USA has a GDP of $20 trillion. It has an armed force of 1.5 million personnel. An annual budget of $600 billion. It has 10,000 planes, 300 ships, projecting its power around the world. And what is the US to God? Like a speck of dust on his scales. And in my mind, the US is mind-boggling in its size and power. It's, it's awesome. No, I wouldn't want to poke it. But to God, it's just dust. So even the nations are not in God's league. To compare them to God is to diminish God. Your God is too small, says Isaiah. What about our understanding? Who's understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? This university has some very, very clever people in it who were standing on the shoulders of generations after generations of generations of very clever people, now all over the world, sharing their information and research through the internet and journals and everything else. It was announced this morning that a couple of uh, medical researchers had won the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine. (laughs) and Actually, one of them wasn't research, it was to do with um, fighting cancer. One of them wasn't researching cancer at all. He was researching some other proteins and just happened to find out, discover accidentally, that these proteins uh, helped with cancer. He was standing on the shoulders of people who stood on the shoulders and stood on the shoulders of many generations. Well let me ask you Did God consult the UWA engineering faculty when he decided on the specific gravity of water? Did he get a few tips from Albert Einstein to make sure he got relativity right? When he fine-tuned the universe, and he did fine-tune it, do you know that the, the, the ratio between the electromagnetic constant and the gravitational constant needs to be fine-tuned to the level of about 1 in 10 to the 40 to get anything heavier than, than helium in the whole universe? When God fine-tuned the universe, did he take a course in pure physics at MIT to get his maths right? It, did Jesus bone up on stem cell research at the Lion's Eye Institute before he healed a blind man? It's easy to think that God would struggle with advanced calculus or string theory. But a God who struggles with that is an imaginary God. That's not the true and living God. Your God is too small, says Isaiah, if you're intimidated by clever professors and smart Alex students. Oh, what about power, political power? He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. A whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. It's easy to think that political power is a sort of a rule to itself. It's in control of its own destiny. Do you know that less than 30 years ago the biggest threat to our world, at least from Australia, was the USSR. You heard of it recently? No, it's disappeared. It's blown away. It was called the evil empire by successive US presidents and Australian prime ministers. And it spectacularly collapsed in the space of a few short years. Friends, if you've never studied history, can I encourage you to study some history? Because if you never study history, you're inclined to be naively think that whatever the current state of world politics and power is, it's always been like that. No, it hasn't keeps changing. God keeps blowing people away. Whether it's Trump or Turnbull or Bill Gates or Colonel Gaddafi, when God decides to remove them, they're gone. They may frighten us, they may intimidate us, but they're not in the same league as God. Your God is too small. Or Isaiah compares our gods to the true and living God, the idols of his day, which at best misrepresent God. You have an image of God, a bull or a seven-headed woman or a cape to Batman. It compares God to something that we know, to created things, as if somehow created things are in the same league as their creator. And Isaiah mocks it a bit. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold. Humans make it in their own image. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. He carefully, he selects the right sort of wood so it doesn't rot. Because he doesn't want his God to just rot away with um, eaten by a few worms. And he gets someone to, to shape it, to carve it, so it won't topple over, because you can't have a God that moves, can you? That would be a disaster. Many today... Make the charge that religion is a human construct. God created humans in his image and we return the compliment. God is just a human creation in our own image. And interestingly, the Bible agrees with that assessment of all human religion. That's what it is. But it's not just those who make up their own religion outside Christianity. It's a temptation for us as Christians, I think, to domesticate the God of the Bible. If I don't like what he does about uh, uh, evil, if I can't cope with a truly sovereign God, I just sort of cut him down to size. The result, of course, is always a God just like me. Maybe a bit bigger, maybe a bit nicer, um, uh, 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 but in my image, like the superheroes that populate our movies. Isaiah says, Your God is too small. It might be an easy God to cope with, it might fit in your pocket. It might make you feel warm and cosy. But he can't actually do anything. He can't bring substantial comfort. He's just left on the sidelines wringing his hands in frustration. And so Isaiah says to the people of Israel, you look at Babylon, and in your mind you think it's never going to happen. God can never overthrow Babylon. And Isaiah says, your God is too small. So wait, hope in the Lord. So the the chapter finishes this way. Don't you know? Haven't you heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't grow weary or tired. Other gods do, they need a nap. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary, increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men stumble and fall. Do a little lighter, you'll feel that. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They'll soar on wings like eagles, they'll run and not grow weary, they'll walk and not faint. If the person who hopes, who waits for God to act, hopes in something that's sure, he can trust, we can trust in God's firm promises. So wait for him to do what he's promised. What Israel needed as it languished in exile, despondent, hopeless, was to have all their puny, inadequate images of God exposed demolished replaced with the real God the incomparable God not the images in your mind that diminish God and make him a mere superhero no the real God so how do we do that well let me tell you one way to do it of course there's only ever been one true image of God and he walked and talked in Palestine in the early years uh, of the first century. God the Son, who became flesh, the person of Jesus Christ. And interestingly, there's no physical description of Jesus. No one took a photo of him, and that's actually really helpful. Of course, if they had, if we had a physical description, you'd try and imagine him, wouldn't you? you? You'd think, how long was his beard? How tall was he? Was he as tall as, uh, uh, as Aaron Sanderlands? But there wasn't any, because that's not the point. It's not to give us a mental image But to perceive the majesty of Jesus in his power of healing and raising from the dead and calming storms, in his gentle mercy to those who are suffering, his piercing wisdom and understanding, his purity and righteousness, his death on a cross paying for sin, his resurrection to rule with a mighty arm. Behold your God. And what a God. The infinite contracted to a span yet still incomparably, God. Israel needed real comfort, the promise of action, by nothing less than the real God, whose word endures forever. And they needed not just the promise, they needed the action itself, in God's time when it comes. And God said that those who wait and hope in him will run and not grow weary. But the people of Israel had to wait a bit longer than they expected, In 539 BC, Babylon the great, Babylon the impenetrable, was demolished almost overnight as an empire. It was overthrown and collapsed spectacularly. And the exiles were freed. Some returned, expectant that when they got back to Jerusalem, everything would be like Isaiah 40 promised. But it was actually disappointing. It happened, but it wasn't all that Isaiah led them to hope for. And for the next 500 years, many of the people of Israel were dejected. They gave up. Like most Jews today, no, God's never going to act. Some decided to take things into their own hands and fight. If God hasn't done it, we'll do it for ourselves. But some waited and hoped and trusted till the real thing came. Here's what Luke says about an old man called Simeon who who hung around in the temple in Jerusalem. There's a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout He was waiting for the comfort of Israel. He was waiting for what Isaiah 40 was promising. And the Holy Spirit uh, was upon him. And he saw a young couple in the temple courts with a newborn baby. And God revealed to him that this was the one he was waiting for. You know what he says? He says, I'm happy to die now (laughs) because I've seen the salvation of God. Take me. I've seen enough. John the Baptist, though, he hadn't seen enough. He goes around the country of Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance. And he quotes Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. The, The civil engineering job. And all mankind will see God's salvation. So he's the voice, the messenger, saying it's about to happen. The one coming after me is incomparably greater than me. And the one coming after him came, Jesus, the good shepherd who gathered his sheep who laid down his life for his sheep. And he's still gathering his sheep. He's gathering them here at UWA, even in this year, gathering those that are his to himself, carrying them like little lambs. And as he left the earth, he said, wait for me. Wait for my return to complete the comfort. And this is what Peter talks about in his letter. He says to the Christians there, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. Remember the, 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 the flowers. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. And that's the word, the gospel, that was preached to you. If God's word continues to be rock solid, his gospel word, it rebirths us as we hear it. It brings us to life, into relationship with God, into a living hope waiting for Christ's return. don't know whether you feel like Israel did, intimidated by bigger and smarter people around you, maybe despondent by the difficulty of being loyal to Jesus in the context you're in at uni or in your family, maybe impatient, why did my pain go on and on and on, why doesn't God change it? Well the solution is not by being smarter or stronger, it's not by having a more powerful church or Christian union. The solution is in knowing God. In grasping the majesty of the God who's promised. The reality is, your God is too small. My God is too small. It doesn't actually match reality. What I imagine in my mind is not the true and living God so often. It's so much smaller. So much diminished. Now, the true and living God is one whose word you can hope in. He is committed and he has the capacity to bring it about. That's what he'll do. So wait and hope. Will you pray with me and then we've got a bit of time for questions. Let's pray. Our Father, we apologise that often the way we think about you is so inadequate and even dishonouring of you. Because we compare you to things that are much less than you. Please help us to work out how to comprehend the incomprehensible. How to trust the one who truly is trustworthy. Amen.